Hi, and welcome to Leads to Scale, a podcast from Social Media Week. I'm Toby Daniels, and I will be your host. If you didn't get a chance to listen to our pilot episode, Leads to Scale is a brand new podcast that aims to provide you with practical insights and emerging trends in social media with the goal of helping you achieve your marketing objectives. Our first interview is with Susie's founder and CEO, Matt Britton. I've known Matt for the better part of a decade, and over the years, he's become one of our most popular speakers at Social Media Week. Back in April, he sat down with Joseph Rev Run Simmons of Run DMC fame to discuss the origins, current state, and future outlook of celebrity influencers at our 10th anniversary Social Media Week conference in New York City. Matt really is a true pioneer in our industry, having built and sold a number of businesses, including MRY, which he sold to the publicist group a few years ago. In his current role as CEO of Suzy, Matt is building something truly unique in the marketing and technology space. And during our conversation, we talked about how he pivoted and rebranded Suzy, how he's scaling the business, and what he sees as the most exciting emerging trends in the social media space. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Toby. So for the benefit of our listeners, and, and honestly, it's hard to imagine that like anyone out there has not like heard of you or, or your various accomplishments, but for the uninitiated, tell our audience who you are and what do you do? Um, well, I right now I'm the CEO of a advertising marketing technology company called Suzy. Um, I have been running this company for about two years. It was formerly called CrowdTap. Um, before that, for about 15 years, I started and ran a marketing services firm called Mr. Youth, which became MRY, uh, which is now part of the Publicis Group. So you've had a, a long and, and rich and illustrious kind of career in the advertising business. And, and to a certain extent, over that time, you've seen, I imagine, some extraordinary changes and shifts happening kind of like in the marketing media and communications landscape when you sort of look back and you think about like the time that you've been in this industry what are some of the most kind of significant shifts that you've seen that have been uh important to you and various businesses that you've started and run over the years that have like you know impacted in a significant way that have really shaped the way that you sort of think about the business well, I mean, I think I've probably seen, and many of my peers, yourself probably included, have seen more change in the last 15 years that we've been in business than most people probably before us have seen in a lifetime. I mean, when I first started my agency, Mr. Youth, the internet itself was just becoming a thing. Um, my very first business at a college called the Magma Group um, basically was working with some of the first internet companies um, that were ever publicly traded, like Yahoo and Lycos and eBay. Um, and then that went under when the dot-com bubble burst in 2000. And by the time I started Mr. Youth in 2002, the, the dot-com bubble was just um, – the, the industries were just rebounding from the dot-com bubble. So when I started, the internet as kind of a mainstream consumer media consumption habit was really just in its infancy. And then, of course, in 2004, 2005, um, we were working with Facebook um, with the, directly with the founders, Mark and Eduardo, right when Facebook started. Um, and we were sort of alongside with them for that entire crazy ride, which is still going on in terms of Facebook's meteoric growth and really the growth of social media marketing. Um, along the way, there's the, you know, the rapid adoption of the iPhone um, and mobile computing and, and 
and smartphones and smart cameras and all the changes that's um, you know impacted the marketing advertising industry. So it's just been quite wild to see these new inventions um, come about into the marketplace and how large brands really uh, try to react or overreact to them and how incredible new startups are, are born um, as a result of these changes. What, what was your big insight that like led to you starting Mr. Youth in, in the first place? I think the insight was, and there was nothing new, it's just brands, especially with the advent of the internet, brands really needed help in understanding what this meant for what that meant for targeting young people. Um, all of a sudden you have young people that are that are spending more and more time looking at computers back then and and you know brands had no idea what to make of it because up until that point the only thing they knew how to do was run print ads and take out television spots. So um, my whole goal of starting Mr. Youth was there's more to life in terms of targeting young people than um, taking out television ads or running um, print ads. Um, and basically helping brands understand and educate them about how to execute these, what was then non-traditional tactics, and then um, you know how to make those things drive our clients' business goals. And, and how did that, over the life of the agency, you know, up until and, and even through the, the Publicis uh, acquisition, how, how did that initial like insight change and how did your thinking evolve over that time? And obviously, you know, so, so towards the end of your, your reign at, uh, at Mr. Youth, which obviously then became, became MIY, you, you published the book Youth Nation, which was really yeah. sort of like a, a catalog of all of the kind of the ways in which you're sort of thinking about um, this space and, and youth audiences and how brands can connect more deeply with, with these audiences. But how did your insight and, and evolve over that time? And, and what did you learn through the process of actually writing the book? Yeah. Um, so that's a, that's, a, that's a long question. So I'll try to answer as succinctly as possible. When I first started Mr. Youth, my belief was that the best way to target teens and college students were through other teens and college students. This is before social media was really existed, didn't exist at that point at all. So we did that through building these nationwide student representative programs. Um, Microsoft, for instance, very early on, 2003, hired us to hire a thousand college students across the country to market Microsoft products. And very short in that period, we created a piece of software, which would became CrowdTap, which became Suzy, where I am today. Um, so everything kind of comes full circle, which is kind of ironic. Um, and then with social media started, a couple of kids at Ivy League school started to say, well, do we just have to market Microsoft on campus or can we do it online through Facebook? And they said, well, what's Facebook? And they told me what it was. And I ended up getting in touch with Facebook by looking up in their domain registry, the phone number, which I ended up calling and Mark Zuckerberg picked up the phone um, in late 2003, early 2004. Um, and we ended up becoming one of their first ever API partners through the first iteration of CrowdTap. I sold some of the first ads ever um, on Facebook. And that started a journey from our company away from being these sort of peer-to-peer -peer marketing tacticians to helping um, businesses understand how to target college students on Facebook. Because at that point, you had to have a .edu address to be on Facebook. Then mm -hmm. Facebook starts to spread the teens and, and, and other demographics, and brands start to say to us, well, can you help us on Facebook and then soon to be Twitter um, actually reach all consumers, not just college students. And, you know, we're like, yes. So then we became tacticians in social media marketing. And when I say tacticians, it was more about getting the message out. It wasn't really strategic at that point. And then around 2009, 2010, I started to see how this whole game worked in terms of you get paid X amount to do, but you get paid a lot more and you can grow a much bigger business if you get paid to think. 
And I saw these other traditional agencies that were working with clients, and I just thought I knew the consumer and I knew this new landscape better than them. So we start to reposition our business to being much more of a strategic shop versus just a tactician that can actually go and do stuff because that would get us a seat at the table. That would get us agency of record appointments, and that would grow our business dramatically, which it did. Um, and that really started a whole nother growth phase of our business of becoming a social media agency of record. We were one of Coca-Cola's first ever social media agencies of record. Um, and Microsoft's and, and the Olympics, et cetera. And that was sort of the peak of MRY in terms of its growth rate. So a lot of iterations, we've had to keep reinventing ourselves um, as an agency over time to remain relevant. I mean, we could have stayed as tacticians in the college space and peer to peer, we would have had a decent sized business, but I think our ability to quickly pivot and turn based upon the marketplace and, and, our, and our growth and expertise is really what led to our success as a business. So you talk about going full circle with Susie, uh, and I want to sort of come come back to uh, that in, in just a second. But um, obviously, you know, m- midway through your time at um, MRY, you, you started CrowdTap. Could just go back to that and talk about like yep. what what prompted you to spin out what what was essentially a, a you know a marketing or Martech based company. Um, yep. you know, why did you spin that out? What what was the original kind of vision, and then how did that sort of evolve into what essentially Susie is today? Yep. So the original iteration of CrowdTap was actually not even called CrowdTap. It was called something called RepNation, but it was kind of the same thing, which was software we had built to manage and measure college student ambassadors. So when Microsoft would say hire a thousand college students, at first we tried to you know manage them through Excel, which didn't wasn't really effective. So we built the software where they can log in and share reports of things they were doing on campus and communicate with other student reps, et cetera. Um, and then what started to happen is some of the agencies we were working with on behalf of our clients start to say, well, now there's this whole new thing called bloggers. Can we license your software to manage bloggers or word of mouth marketers? Uh, and I start to think, well, maybe there's another business idea here. And that's what led me to spin out CrowdTap into its own company. Um, a guy named Brandon Evans, who is sort of the product manager of this of this product, became the CEO. Um, we spun out the company. Um, Brandon and I went on the roadshow and helped raise venture capital back in 2009. Um, our lead investor was a foundry group who's still involved um, in the company today and a great partner. But that was sort of the impetus behind it. Um, I would sit on the board of CrowdTap um, for the next seven years as I was building and, and ultimately selling our agency, but remained fairly closely involved um, with the CrowdTap business. And then after the agency was acquired and I worked for Publicis for a couple of years, the timing was right for me to come back and, and take over this company. Why did you come back? Um, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons. A, I was, you know, I, I owned a significant stake of this business. So, you know, I basically had three choices. I could have stayed working at Publicis Group or went to go work for a similar size, larger business. I could have started something from scratch. Um, or I could come into a fairly established business with investors who were friends of mine, which I already owned a significant stake of, and take it from, uh, you know, say 10,000 feet um, to 50,000 feet versus taking a company and trying to get it off the runway. Um, I thought that at this point in my career, um, I could drive a lot more value creation um, with the latter, taking a company that was already airborne and making it um, fly at higher altitudes and trying to get a company off the runway. And that's what I decided to do. So you obviously jumped back in. Um, a couple of things you did fairly quickly, obviously, you sort of pivoted, uh, for want of a better word, uh, and rebranded the company. You could talk a little bit about kind of some of the thinking around that. And then what is the sure. vision for Susie today? Got it. I mean, it was a hard pivot. Um, basically, when I joined what CrowdTap was, um, it, it was a essentially a consumer platform where over a million people signed up to earn points for creating and sharing content. 
Um, so basically, you know, Huggies would ask a mom who had a baby to take a picture of her and her baby in a Huggies box and share it on Facebook. She'd earn rewards for that. And I just thought that that model was kind of in the rearview mirror because, as you know, people every day aren't talking about toothpaste and Twizzlers and peanut butter on social media. They just don't do that. And I just thought it was disingenuine. Um, and while at a certain point in the early iterations of social media, it was impactful, you know, the algorithms of, of, of ma many of the major platforms had changed. And I just thought that that wasn't a business model that could really scale. However, I saw sort of a diamond in the rough in this user base of over a million people because they were super engaged. And before a brand would allow them to take part in action, they would ask them a series of questions to qualify them in these consumers would answer instantly. And I started to look back at my agency days and think of all the times when, you know, brand marketers would just guess or basically look at what we call now the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion of what they thought, um, you know, what color the logo should be or what idea was a good idea or what celebrity they should partner with. And all of it was just subjective. And now we're in a world where everything should be data driven. So I took uh, my experience in the agency world and took what I thought was a very powerful, always on audience to extract intelligence from. And I connected the dots and that's what Susie, um, that's how Susie was born. So basically what Susie does today is allow businesses of all sizes to leverage a self-service technology platform where they can essentially target a finite group of consumers, ask them a question in a variety of different formats and get answers back instantly in the same meeting they're in to help dictate decision-making in ways that Google can't, in ways that an individual can't. Um, and also go back to those consumers who answer a certain way and retarget them or even pull them into an online focus group or get them to respond to creative. So you basically have the power of a million consumers in your pocket at all times. And you know we're really trying to fill a white space in the market research or marketing intelligence space that is currently unfulfilled, which is there are like you know three to 5% of decisions that are heavily tested through long form market research. But that 95% plus decisions have no data behind it. And you know that's where the, those little decisions that are wrong with no data behind it can add up to very bad big decisions. And that's the problem we're trying to solve. So give, give us an example of some of the brands that are on the platform and using it today and, and, and some of the ways that they're like benefiting from, from the Suzy sure. sort of service. I mean, we have a lot of major consumer packaged goods companies using it, whether it be Procter & Gamble or Johnson & Johnson. They're using it to uncover insights in terms of how consumers um, are looking at their products, what types of new products they'd like to see, um, what packaging designs do they think are best. We have a lot of companies that sell direct to consumer, whether it be wireless service companies um, like T-Mobile or Netflix with, you know, as a content company that are using it to test their own content. Um, we have a lot of large companies that are testing social media content before they're pushing it out. Um, again, testing packaging design, um, asking consumers what they thought of the World Cup last night um, and getting that feedback instantly, which they can then use to kind of frame how they're going to go to market with a certain promotion or a product launch, et cetera. We have right now over 80 enterprise brands, major companies that are using uh, the platform for a variety of different purposes. And to be honest with you, I don't even know how it's being used because it's really not my business. We license the tool. We onboard yeah. our clients. We we give them suggestions on how they can use it, but ultimately we don't have access to their data or how they're um, asking consumers questions. We just want to make sure they're happy with it and we're continuing to build a product that meets their needs, which is completely different than running an agency business. Well, you know, it's funny. I was going to ask actually, because like you, know, you, you started and ran these two businesses in parallel for a while, but obviously now you're uh -huh. singularly focused on uh, on Suzy, which is just a fundamental, fundamentally different business as compared to an agency sure but how, how has it been different has it been a, has it been tough to kind of like make the transition and and you know without necessarily having to choose favorites like 
how do you feel in? Oh, in I can. I'll area? definitely choose a favorite. <laughs> I, I mean, you by far, being on the software side, uh, you know, I like so much more now. Listen, I I'm blessed to have by uh, you know uh, circumstance and and you know what I walked into and the great work that the CrowdTap team d- did before I joined. We have a great product that is a product market fit that works well that you know companies find value in. So it's easy for me to say now that it's much better to be a software company because many companies, many people that run a software company don't have that luxury. They never get to a point where they have product market fit. But once you have product market fit, it's truly a meritocracy. Meaning I. You know, I'm not being judged on anything, but how good is my product and how good it meets their needs? Where, you know, my largest client on the agency side, you know, we're doing an eight-figure revenue sum every year, and then the CMO leads leaves, and the new CMO comes in, and the next year we do five million in revenue, and the next year we're completely out. And yeah. I put my heart and soul into a business, and to no fault of mine, just because a new CMO comes in. The business evaporates. That's not a meritocracy. You know, a lot of big Madison Avenue agencies, the their golfing buddies, the, you know, the CEO of a Madison Avenue agency's golfing buddies with the CMO of a big brand, and that's how their business gets done. Whether or not they really know where the consumer is headed or not, and a lot of companies long term are going to suffer from that. But there's so much politics um, that go on in the advertising industry, and it's not a meritocracy. The best ideas don't win. What what's on your business card often outshines it at a lot of these large companies where Again, with our company, it's if our product is good and it's meeting the needs of our customer, it's going to continue to be adopted, and that is great. I also love the transactional nature where I, I can go in and, and talk to so many different companies um, and and you know meet so many different people and sell it in, and again, then let the product do the work for us. So yeah. that's what I like a lot better um, about this business than the ad agency business. Yeah, I, I think it's such an important insight there that you just touched on in, in comparing these two types of businesses and business models. But I think what's really interesting is like how it impacts the consumer at the end of the day, right? Because in, in the in the agency world, if the, the best ideas don't necessarily always make it to the consumer because of the way in which the industry is structured, um, and ultimately the consumer. I'd, I'd say five percent. I'd say five percent. Right. I'd say five percent of all ideas that we ever presented because we were always non-traditional. We didn't right. make TV spots, right? We didn't right. make print ads. So, you know, so much of what we presented just ended up on the cutting room floor and it, we were just getting paid the right PowerPoint decks. Um, right. And now we have a real live product that's being used both by consumers and brands every single day. So we are truly making an impact. And that to me is, you know, what keeps me going every day and gets me so excited. Leads to Scale is brought to you by Social Media Week's next conference, SMW London, the UK's premier event for professionals in media, marketing, and technology. SMW London is happening November 14th to the 16th at the Queen Elizabeth Conference Centre in Westminster and will feature over 60 talks, workshops, and roundtable discussions led by leading thinkers at Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, The Economist, the BBC, BBH London, Tex100, Hearst, Iris, Endemol, and many more. Listeners to this podcast can attend Social Media Week London by registering at socialmediaweek.org forward slash London. Use offer code leads to scale. That's leads number two scale at checkout for an extra 15% off the current ticket price. That's leads to scale to save 15% off your pass. Okay, on with the show. So, so let's like t- transition a little bit to um, uh, to to 
talking about how you're actually like scaling the the, the Susie business. Like, yeah, one of the reasons we started this podcast is because we wanted to be able to share um, not just insight into your products and the services that you provide, but also um, uh, offering the audience insight into the B two B marketing side of what you do, right? How do you acquire customers? How do you retain customers? What does the customer relationship look like? And how do you maintain and develop that over time? Yep. And, and, and you know, you, you and I are friends and we've known each other for years. And I've always been incredibly impressed by you, not just as like the leader of your organization, but and not just as an entrepreneur, but also as someone in the industry who plays like such an important role and understands how to play the game in terms of uh, how you scale your business, whether you're acquiring new clients for your agency or whether you're acquiring new customers for your product. Um, so can you talk about that from a personal sort of standpoint, as well sure. as from the Susie perspective in terms of how you're sort of bringing new customers to the platform? Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, it goes without saying that whether you're building a technology company or, or an agency, talent is everything. So our ability to attract and recruit talent that has a sense of urgency when they walk into work every day, that believes in the vision, that cares about the company more than they care about themselves, um, you know, that, that's going to think about the business when they're in the shower, right? It's very hard to build that. It's very hard to build a culture that facilitates um, that talents um, wanting to work at your company and stay at your company. And that's really the number one challenge, I believe, of not only our company, but um, any company that wants to scale that's at our point. But, you know, putting that aside, there's a bunch of things that we're focused on as a business. But and, and you know, we're not just B2B marketers, we're B2C marketers because we have a consumer product that over a million people are registered for and use. So, um, you know, on the B2C side, we are doing a lot of work right now and rolling out um, new features, new functionalities, new products. So we can continue to attract a diversified representative sample base because ultimately our our clients don't want to hear opinions just from one audience they don't want to appear just hear opinions from you know males age 18 to 21 they want to hear a weighted um you know feedback and some don't some do but we need to provide that so a lot of work's being done on the b2c side um on the b2b side though which is which is your question so i'll focus more time on that um there's a couple elements of play First and foremost is relationships. Um, you know, my ability to build um, significant relationships with people throughout the advertising industry has been hugely impactful for us to drive the growth in the early phases because ultimately trust is everything. And if you are calling someone that doesn't know you, you're just an email address on the screen. Um, I always tell young people, one of the biggest mistakes I've made throughout my entire career is, you know, sometimes only focusing on those people who I thought could help me, you know, th that week or that quarter. Um, if I see somebody at a conference from a company that I've never heard of before or from a, maybe another agency that was some competitive, I wouldn't pay them as much attention as I would to the person from Coca-Cola or Ford Motors. And I think that's a mistake for a lot of reasons. Um, a, you're going to learn from these people. It's a long road, and those people are going to end up in places where they can help you in the future. And you never know where those relationships are going to lead. I mean, I always talk about you know meeting an old client who was not at, in a place where they could help me for coffee, and her brother-in-law ended up being you know, a CMO at a major company and ran into us at Starbucks and she made the intro and that is how we got one of our big customers. If I wouldn't have taken that meeting, it never would have happened. So I think those relationships are super important. Um, but that only takes you so far. 
you know, you need to scale beyond your own relationships to build the type of company that we want to build. And that's where you really need to build in what we do, which is um, a SaaS business, having, you know, a scalable marketing automation and demand gen approach where basically it becomes one big math equation for every X amount of people we reach out to, we get X amount of demos. Um, for every X amount of qualified demos we give, we get X amount of customers. And really, it's figuring out what the econo unit economics are behind that, you know, that outreach approach and making sure you can scale it um, in a way that continues to drive growth long term for your business. And then retaining customers, you know, the product should do the work for you. If we continue mm -hmm. to build the product and listen to the needs of our consumers, our customers and continue to iterate and make it a stable, reliable system, then, you know, you can really retain, you know, uh, your customers for the long term, which really is the, the golden goose of of SaaS is, is customer retention because that's how you get a business that's accretive every year and you really start to get that um you know that hockey stick growth rate that we're looking to achieve how, how important is is your contribution individually um in the early stages of scaling something versus like later on as the business starts to mature and i and i, I mean that from yeah. the perspective of um, those relationships that you can talk about early on very early on you know your first 25 customers you know, it's a herd mentality, right? So if we call an auto company, they're going to ask what other auto companies you've worked with. And the only way that you could break that cycle of having the first one dive in is to really either get incredibly lucky or lean into a personal relationship. So for our first, say, 15 to 20 customers, my personal relationships um, were incredibly um, important. But now that we're at 80 and heading towards 100 customers, it's less important and, and it needs to be because me running around and selling is not scalable. I need to train our team to build their own relationships and build an engine that can scale the product in a way that's much bigger than me. That's another big difference between a software company and an agency. When I was running an agency, I could sell myself. I was at every major pitch personally. Um, and I, and the same way you look at like a Vayner media, right? I mean, you know, Gary's done an amazing job at selling his own personal brand that gets people in the door and, and, mm -hmm. and done a masterful job at transitioning it to other people in his organization. Cause he can only be at so many places at once, right? Well, you can do that a lot easier when you're running an agency, because even the largest agencies might have 25, 30 clients in a year, but a software company might have 300, a thousand clients in a year. Then it becomes impossible for you to sell yourself you need right. to scale out a team and that's really my focus has shifted a lot in that direction um you know obviously i continue to make intros and be at key meetings but we have 18 people on our sales team now and they all have their own quotas and they have their own relationships and my goal is to motivate them inspire them and give them the tools that they need to succeed you know uh, when i think about like like last couple of years from sort of social media standpoint and you know you've obviously represented and you've been a speaker at numerous conferences and yep. you know um you've not just been a personal kind of favorite of mine you've you've been a favorite among yep. you know all of our audiences um uh, and the, the the value and the contribution you've made i think to the conversation and the the extent to which you've like impacted people through the talks that you've given has been significant but but one aspect of that, which I think is really interesting, which which speaks a little bit to kind of like how you position yourself as a leader, 
is that um, not on one occasion did you ever get up on stage and actually talk about your business? Or do you yep. talk about your product? Or do you talk about your clients? Um, yep. it, it never, you know, evolved into ultimately like a sales pitch disguised as something else. It was always focused on like sharing an insight, something yep. that you felt very deeply about or something that you're excited about or something you felt would be really relevant and interesting to our audience. Talk about kind of why you approach it in that way and then how you see the benefit to your business by approaching it in such a way so that you're not actually selling, but instead you're just creating value? Well, I mean, you need to create value to build trust and to get people to listen to you in this world. Um, if you just, if you're all about taking, 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 you're going to be much less successful, period. It, you know, whether you're always asking people for money or favors and you never give back. For me, I actually get value and, and, and a tremendous personal value out of inspiring people and out of, out of making them think about the world in a different way. Regardless of if it translates to business or not, it's just something I love to do. And you always get such a diverse audience um, at social media week events. You're going to be able to get on stage and just get the feedback that I've been able to get via Twitter or via people coming up to me after the fact. I mean, that is that to me makes me feel so good, regardless of if I ever get business out of it. However, you know, business at the same point, businesses are a shop for services and tools and consultants the same way that, you know, mom shops at Walmart. She buys from brands she knows, right? So she will pay $2 more for Tide versus, you know, a private label detergent because she trusts it. And if I continue to be able to deliver value on stage and extend that value into putting out a ton of content on social media, which I've invested heavily in the last couple of years, I become a brand that people know. And then when I reach out to them and I call them a year later, six months later, whenever, they're much more likely to return my call because they've heard of me before. I'm not just another person that's reaching out to them. So ultimately, that's how it pays off is I'm building myself as a personal brand. And behind that personal brand is somebody that's knowledgeable, trustworthy, energetic, authentic. And if I continue to be known as that and more and more people know me, then I'm going to be able to get in front of the people that I need to when I need to get in front of them. And that's exactly why I do it. Versus if I just sold my product on stage, it, then I'm just another salesperson. I'm not adding value. I'm not building my brand. And I'm, I'm, they don't come to your conferences to be sold products. They come to your conferences to learn. So why use an opportunity to force yourself on them? That will just that that will not pay off in the long term. It might pay off in the short term. Maybe you'll get a one customer that happens to want that product at one that one point and buy. But over time, you won't be asked back to speak at conferences, and you're not going to build the value you want to build. Amen. I love that. I really do appreciate that kind of perspective. And, and honestly, we've, I think, shared sort of like your talks with so many of our kind of, you know, paying uh, sponsors over the years as like just a, a, you know, a best in class kind of example of like how to approach it and how to create value, value that obviously you can extract from right. at some point in the future. I think not enough people are patient, you know, they're just like, I need to sell three deals from this conference. And yeah. if they look at it that way, you know, it's short term thinking and you're going to get short term benefit you have to be invested in the long term and i think that's ultimately what it's all about you have to be patient so let's let's talk about like some industry trends that you're excited about right now i mean obviously there's there are a number of things that kind of are fueling uh, how you're sort of developing the suzy products and service which sure. I, i'm sure relate to kind of sort of big macro, macro level trends that you sort of see sure in space right now but but just, can you talk about some of those as they relate to, to yeah. suzy but also like outside of that what else are you looking at that you're excited about in terms of trends yeah. So I think one of the main things that's becoming evidently clear is that most of the Fortune 500 
is really is, is facing a mountain of trouble ahead of them because they do not have first party customer data. You know, you look at the most popular brands in the world, whether traditionally, whether it be Nike or Coca-Cola um, or, you know, the Procter and Gamble brands, you name it. Traditionally, all they had to do is go to Bentonville, Arkansas and get more shelf space, um, you know, and, and, and then their products is going to, you know, at Walmart and then the products going to sell, that's it. But now you have more younger people staying in cities and most importantly, more and more people ordering products over Amazon. And in order for you to sell direct to consumers and build those direct relationships, you need first party data and companies don't have first party data. So with Susie, we give companies the ability to make up for their lack of first party data to gain instant insights, because if they had it, they wouldn't be as valuable to them. So I think that's one major trend. And outside of Suzy, I think, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the biggest advertisers in the world really evolve their models. You know, you see Dollar Shave Club being, being bought by a billion for a billion dollars, right? Why? Because they sold to consumers directly in a category that traditionally sold by a retailer. And I think you're going to see that over and over and over again. And I think it's going to be very hard for these large companies to pivot because they have legacy infrastructures, legacy thinking, and they're still relying way too much on traditional retail channels to, to drive their business in the short term. But in the long term, it's really going to bite them. So I think that's one major trend I'm seeing. Um, I think something like 5G, which is not being talked about nearly enough, um, is really going to change the game just in terms of smart devices, um, video consumption. Um, the, you know the the speed of of way faster than what we know today as Wi-Fi on every person's device is just going to change the interact the way they interact with digital content in the way that I think most people can't even comprehend. Um, obviously, voice. Um, I think voice is going to have specific use cases that are going to change the game, and in other ways, it's not going to be as big as what people think. But in the ways that it saves people time on an everyday basis, mostly search. I think Google is really going to have to reinvent themselves because in a world where the iPhone or Android devices are in everyone's hand, you know, when people are going to search, sure, with Android, Google is going to be able to win. But with the huge iOS penetration, Apple now can dictate who delivers the search results. So I think it's going to put a lot of pressure um, on Google from a search standpoint. And obviously television, which is something I've talked about a lot at social media week events, you know, still 80% of most large clients' budgets are going towards running television spots, despite the fact that more and more um, young people and, and people really of all ages are cutting the cord. Young kids, 10, 11, 12 years old, have no idea what a TV network is. They just don't know even what it is, yet so much money is still going to TV networks. So when that kind of becomes you know, quite decentralized and content continues to become proliferated everywhere, not just on major TV networks. I think that there's going to be so much business opportunity. It's op opening up as a part of it. And that's something else that I continue to be fascinated with. So, so something, a couple of things that you, you just mentioned, I'd love to sort of touch on. Um, first of all, like, you know, today, Facebook and Google are winning, you know, the, the duopoly, uh, um, that, that controls just such a huge percentage of like, digital marketing spend at the very least. Um, and they, you know, realistic will, will continue to sort of, you know, win and dominate in, in the sort of the, the next few years. Um, who, who do you see as the potential winners in the future that, that either are sort of like on the, uh, you know, just sort of, you know, starting to kind of like, you know, um, uh, develop and evolve and, and starting to kind of sort of break through that, that, that like exists outside of the kind of the duopoly and even outside of some of the other like known um, players in this space? 
Sure. I mean, I look at a company like Brandless, who is selling high quality products for $3. And I think that they are really um, onto something there where I think consumers in, in a barbell economy where you're going to have people who are super wealthy and then people who really are not and not much in between, which is obviously has already taken place in many areas around the world, but now is accelerating for better or for worse in America. I think, you know, they're hitting on both sides of it where people want quality ingredients, but they also want to overpay for brands. And they are building um, ultimately a, an audience directly in a, in a world where most of their competitors or products they sell don't. And I think that's going to be super impactful. Um, I think that the notion of a lot of large companies like Ikea buying TaskRabbit is, I think, something that you're going to start to see more and more of. So, for example, you know, if you look at, um, you know, platforms like Glam Squad that come into people's homes and do makeup for them, I think that if you're Revlon or L'Oreal or Maybelline, you're going to want to buy a company like that because that's distribution into the home. That's first party data. So I think any company that can create services which have consistent interaction with the consumer and gets into their home or gets into their place of work is going to be able to build tremendous value because most of the companies whose products that you're, that you're using in the home don't have that access. So I think ultimately the biggest disruptor to all of this, which is creating opportunity, is obviously Amazon. It's just, you know, the Amazon, I read 50% of all e-commerce is going to be over Amazon by the end of this year, and they're just going into every single category. So ultimately, we talk about advertising, but at the very end of the advertising funnel is people buying stuff. And almost everything now is being bought online, and almost everything right now is being bought on Amazon. So I think that is the biggest driver of disruption ultimately in the advertising and marketing industry is the very bottom of the funnel and how it's being disrupted by Amazon. And that's going to create tremendous roadkill, and that's also going to create tremendous opportunity. One of the talks that you gave, I think it was in Chicago, um, spoke to this very specifically and talked about the kind of the death of the brand. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you talk about that? Just because just like, some of the folks in our, in our, you know, listening to this, you know, may or may not have, uh, have seen that talk. Yep. Um, but I, I just think it was just so interesting. Um, and this sort of insight that you provided around the evolution of the brand and in particular why brands are becoming like less important to, today and, and why they will become less important in the future. Can you sort of speak to that a little bit? Because I think it sure. builds on that previous point nicely. Yeah, I'll try to summarize it. I mean, I think right now, if you look at the top 10 most valuable brands in the world, you don't see Hershey, Hershey chocolate or Nike or Tide or, you know, Ford or BMW or those tried and true, you know, historically great brands. They are nowhere to be found in that list. What is in there and what what is in their uh, place is Verizon and Microsoft and Samsung and obviously Google and Facebook. And the reason why is that those brands are utilities to consumers. You know, they, they solve problems for them when they wake up at six o'clock in the morning or when they're putting their kids to bed at night or when they need to be entertained. And they are utilitarian in nature. And I think those are brands that matter to consumers. On the flip side, though, brands that allow consumers to tell a story about themselves, like I'm going to wear these sneakers and become a better basketball player, or I'm going to drive this car and enjoy my ride in the countryside better than the other car. I think that consumers are starting to see that there's a very little delta between one brand and the other. Every car is great. 
every chocolate bar um, is great. And ultimately, consumers in the past had no choice but to buy into these brand stories that they saw on television because they had no other way to access information. But now consumers are smarter and they can compare and they can get reviews from other consumers. And because of it, for brands that are all about building that sort of brand story, it's sort of becoming a race to the bottom. And, and, and it's really hard for these companies to differentiate. And that's why you see private label creeping into supermarkets and for things like detergent and shampoo, more and more consumers. And I think that's, you know, that, that, that ultimately is going to continue over time and it's going to put pr pressure on a lot of these brands and they're going to have to redefine themselves as utilitarian in nature to, to make consumers' lives easier, not just make them feel like by having this brand, it's going to be, it's going to make them feel differently because I think that's just not the case anymore in this world where content is so decentralized and, and there's so many brands and there's so much competition and the barriers to entry in so many categories is so low. This is like a, a perfect way to uh, end the show and, and we're out of time. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for joining and, 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 and participating in this conversation. It's been fantastic. For the Absolutely. listeners, um, where can they find more information about you specifically and, of course, Susie? Yeah, uh, me, it's pretty easy. MattBritton.com, M-A-T-T-B-R-I-T-T-O-N.com. All my past speaking engagements, including some of the ones that Toby spoke about, Social Media Week is there, as well as, um, you know, thought leadership posts, things like that. And then about Susie, go to Susie.com, S-U-Z-Y.com, and you can find out what we're working on at Susie. Fantastic. Thanks again, Matt. Much appreciated. Yep. Talk soon. Take care, man. This has been Leads to Scale brought to you by Social Media Week. For more information on how to get involved with future events, visit socialmediaweek.org. If you have a moment, please rate, review and subscribe to Leads to Scale wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.